Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to, a fairly simple premise. So we have transcripts available in our link tree in our Instagram bio at The Grand Thunk. You can message us on there or you can email us on thegrandthunk at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. So please subscribe, rate, review and tell all of your friends. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, really well. I've got some astonishing news that's so out of our comfort zone and I'm going to (laughs) desperately try and explain it to you, but don't ask me any interesting questions about it. Okay, (laughs) a great place to start. Go. (laughs) So have you heard about the crisis in our financial markets? No. Okay. So there's this crazy thing that's been happening. We're recording on Thursday and you're going to hear this on Monday. So news might have developed massively since <laughs> since our recording. But GameStop is a failing business and there's a hedge fund called Melvin Capital, which overextended itself on shorting the stocks of GameStop with typical Wall Street arrogance bought 140% shorts, which is like buying the company and then buying 40% more, which is I've heard on good authority is vaguely illegal. Someone called Deep Fucking Value, who's a Redditor, noticed this and on a subreddit called Wall Street Bets has flagged this up and invested in to GameStop back in 2019. Everyone thought he was crazy because he was buying stocks in a failing business and it be- kind of became a meme. But then people realised that essentially Melvin Capital through this overextending of itself could be brought down, could be brought down. So everyone started investing sort of as a meme from Reddit in GameStop stock. The GameStop stock <laughs> has gone up, which means that the premiums that Melvin is paying to do the short is becoming really, really huge. The community on Reddit are trying to do this thing called a short squeeze, which is... <laughs> Basically, tell me, tell me what it is, Alex. Okay, so they, they, the, <laughs> this Reddit group called Wall Street Bets have worked out that Melvin had really overextended itself by shorting GameStop to such an extent that they could do this thing called a short squeeze. So because Melvin has shorted GameStop, if GameStop's values drop, then Melvin stands to make an awful lot of money on the difference of the drop versus their bet. So the more it drops, the more money they make from the short. What's happened here is that the people on Reddit have banded together to buy as much stock of the GameStop stocks as possible to make it hugely valuable, which means that Melvin is having to play these huge premiums on the fact that they shorted this stock. So it was sort of 50p a stock when this guy called Deep... I say guy, this person called Deep Fucking Value bought the stock and now it's up to sort of between 300 and 400 pounds a stock which is a huge difference. And the longer they wait, the Redditors wait, the more painful it becomes for Melvin. They've taken out a loan to pay these premiums, which are now huge. And the presumption is that at some point they will have to buy the stock back off the Redditors. And so Melvin is doing this thing called degrossing, which is selling all their valuable assets and all their valuable stock to pay for these premiums and it has led to this huge degrossing across the entire financial market so people are selling facebook apple google all these good long-term bets to try and shore up their assets and it's the highest level of degrossing that's happened in the last decade and what's so interesting about this wow there's two sort of sorts of people on on this reddit group half of which is a people that are doing it because they want to make money and they see a great investment opportunity and then the other half are sort of doing it based on this moral kind of class war resentment of bankers and hedge funders which is so interesting because companies like melvin have been doing this sort of shorting thing 
as a means of not pushing other companies under, but shorting is essentially punishing companies for not doing well. It draws attention to the fact that their company is failing in some way or that something fishy might be going on. And sometimes what larger head funders like Melvin do is they go to smaller companies and short them, which necessarily makes the value of the company go down and therefore gives money to whoever shorted it. And so that's the thing that that has thrown a lot of GameStop's value down is the fact that it's been shorted to such a large extent. I mean, essentially, it is failing in the long run, but the short doesn't help. And so Reddit have banded together in this sort of militia type way to use that tactic against them. And they're calling it perhaps hyperbolically the democratization of finance because they're essentially doing what a hedge fund does, but as a collection of individual people on Reddit. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to link a couple of articles in the show notes below because there's a, <laughs> a great chance that I've totally non-accurately presented this situation. But it's just totally insane. And it was crazy last night because... I'm living with an economist and someone who uses Reddit a lot. And <laughs> Great combo. There was this re- <laughs> but there's just this really funny thing where you would be watching these finance people trying to describe what was happening or trying to understand what was happening, but they had no idea why all these stocks were suddenly reversing themselves. And it was just this group on Reddit doing this huge reversal and it's changed so much of the financial market and it is going to be one of those moments that actually does completely change the face of economics in some way and it's a really interesting war of attrition about who's going to break first the redditors whether they can hold on the value of GameStop and hold it up or will the hedge fund bankrupt themselves trying to keep hold of the stock and so there's going to be a very interesting couple of days I think either this Friday or the next Friday the premiums will be due on the stock so theoretically they're holding for that moment I know nothing or next to nothing about economics so but if you are interested maybe you'd like the film The Big Short Ah, I was wondering, as you kept saying short, I thought, oh, my only point of reference here is that film called The Big Short, which actually I haven't even seen, so I can't even get involved through that domain. Ah. But I I have heard great things about that film. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic film, and it does begin to explain some of the world of finance to lay people in the big short it's the 2008 financial crisis where the mortgage market was shorted by another hedge funder so it's essentially that but instead of it being within the finance world it's essentially a bunch of novice finance people that are just you know really going for it what's weird is that it's based on both a meme and then this sort of morality class war thing it's got a real attitude of investors being played at their own game Mm. I don't know there's something very exciting and sort of (laughs) liberating I think this is our version of the French Revolution you know (laughs) (laughs) well good luck Reddit people I feel like they are the people we should be rooting for in this confusing situation that I frankly don't really understand but I feel like are we on their side? Is that how it works? I think so. I mean, I think I've, I think I've I'm on their side. <laughs> I'm, I don't know, but what I'm assuming is that there's some sort of etiquette about how people feel that the finance market should be done. And even though huge head funds are allowed to do what the redditors are doing as a group, there's something more authoritative about the fact that they mm. are. I don't know. They're wearing special suits or something, and therefore that legitimizes their perhaps less moral actions so i think there's Mm, weird some reaction or backlash against the fact that the economics of the world are being disrupted to such a large value i mean because of this degrossing the stocks of facebook and apple and google have fallen considerably so it's Mm. things like that where they've really disrupted the financial market which i think is putting a few noses out of joint and also this idea there is a battle of attrition of who's gonna who's gonna hold out i mean yes it is a disruption of the evil capitalist hedge funders but also that's also going to be then an awful repercussion for the people of melvin if they don't manage to hold out so i'm not i'm not totally sure but we'll watch this space Okay, I, I look forward to you reporting back to me on this with more information, which I'll also pretend to understand. Yeah, the least qualified person in the world to be to be Oh, giving. more than me. As you were explaining it, I was obviously listening very carefully, but all I could think was how much of a good tongue twister GameStop stock was. <laughs> but, uh, how much wood yeah. can a woodchuck chuck if a wood 
chuck could chuck wood, but with GameStop stock. So how much stock could a GameStop stock of a GameStop stock could? I don't know. Stop. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> it's probably not the integrity I should be taking from your interesting conversation instead of making tongue twisters. But hey, light and shade. That's what we're here the for. Democratization of finance. How much game stock could a game could a stock? <laughs> anyway, on with the episode. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been watching this week then, Rhiannon? I'm really sorry. I haven't actually been watching anything, so I've just been reading. <laughs> me neither. Okay, well, I'm going to have to have a book-heavy episode. Usually it's the opposite for me. You're such a quick reader. Usually I'm a watch loads, read one thing at a time. But I've had two books on the go. One of the books I've been reading is a lovely little book, very little book, called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, mm. written by Jean-Dominique Bobby, who is a French journalist and he was also the editor of the fashion magazine Elle. It was written in 1996 and the 1996 was the year after Jean Doe is what he's kind of affectionately called. Jean Doe had a massive stroke. He was in a coma for 20 days mm -hmm. and then was left completely paralyzed and had locked in syndrome. And locked in syndrome is really, really rare syndrome where it's pretty much as described. The body is completely paralyzed, but the mental ability is left intact. Mm. He has the exact same cognitive ability as he did before the stroke, but finds himself trapped without speech in his body that can't move. And the only thing he can move is his left eyelid, which he blinks for communication. So it's pretty amazing to even begin this book knowing he's written this book about his experiences and his life. And you know straight away that he's done it via his left eyelid. It's just a staggering read. I found out halfway through the book that he was a journalist, which would then made sense why his writing was so beautiful. But I was just staggered reading it, not just because of the content, but I was like, he's written this using this communication method that is so complex and challenging. It's not just an account of what happened. It's stunning, stunning, memorable experience that's really stayed with me. The way he writes the book is he uses partner-assisted scanning, which is a technique where a partner reads the alphabet and he blinks to make a choice of a letter. And so they would say A, B, C, blinks, write down C, and on it goes to form words and then sentences and eventually this book. Obviously, nowadays you'd have eye gaze technology and things, but at the time of this book, this is how he did it. After a while of working together, they rearranged the alphabet for the most commonly used letters in French. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, which I was like, oh, of course. And there's a really lovely tongue-in-cheek section where he playfully and really creatively talks about that process of reordering the alphabet. He sort of apologises to W for sort of <laughs> labouring it in last place and congratulates E for graduating <laughs> into pole position. Uh, he's just a really wonderful writer. I folded down and underlined so many sections of this book, which is only, like I said, it's only a short book, but just so memorable. Mm. And it's understandable that he's so great with words, but to think that he wrote and also edited the entire book in his head and then would communicate it bit by bit is just unbelievable. And, you know, forming all of that inside your mind and only being able to release it letter by letter, I just think the, the strength and the creativity to produce something of this standard is just amazing. He talks about the method of communication and how different people that he worked with responded to it differently, mm. which was really interesting. Obviously, his speech therapist or this person called Claude, who helped him write the book, were amazing. But there was also people who were quite reluctant or didn't really want to engage in that way or were just afraid of getting it wrong. There's a really lovely section of the book that I'll read really eloquently describes that. Meticulous people never go wrong. They scrupulously note down each letter and never seek to pierce the mystery of a sentence before it is complete. Nor would they dare dream of finishing a single word for you. Unwilling to chance the smallest error, they will never take it upon themselves to provide the room that follows mush, mm. the ick that follows atom, or the navel, without which neither intermi or abomib or abomib, I can't do it, <laughs> or abomib can exist. Such scrupulousness makes for laborious progress, but at least you avoid the misunderstandings in which impulsive visitors bog down when they neglect to verify their intuitions. Gosh. Yet I understood the poetry of such mind games one day when, attempting to ask for my glasses, lunettes, I was asked what I wanted to do with the moon, lun. <laughs> That's so interesting. 
Isn't it? It's so interesting a process and it's so interesting the different responses to it. There's some lovely moments. There's also some really sad moments where he said there's people who didn't want, I don't know, for whether it's due to effort or just not wanting to engage or not thinking it was worth their time. But if people weren't really attentive with him, they would miss huge things. You know, he would have to get their attention by a blink of the eye or some other small twitch that he was able to develop over physiotherapy and things. And if someone chose to not look out for it, they might mm. not get his message to change the channel because he hated this TV program or pull the curtain because the sun was in his eyes. And it was just the power of those letter by letter exchanges is just monumental. Yeah. And his guardian angel, as he calls her, was his speech therapist. And he writes really, really poignantly about the skill of speech therapy and how such seemingly tiny improvements which took massive amounts of effort and time just transformed his life mm. and on a birthday he could finally recite the alphabet and it was just the best gift he'd ever received wow. it's just such a such a special book there's a lot of lovely humor in it as well he's really really light with his storytelling due to the content you'd imagine it could be quite heavy but the only moments of real heaviness or loss are when he talks about interactions with his children which is just so heartbreaking and sad but I don't think the rest of the book felt heavy at all because it's so obvious and confronting the level of loss and the sadness in his life. He doesn't really go into it or feel the need to spell it out to you. You know, you all know this is such a difficult life to lead when reading the book. And whilst he wasn't a man at peace, he also didn't come across bitter or angry all of the time. And there is just really lovely lightness. There's another section I want to read out about a day trip out of the hospital with his family when his son asks him if he wants to play. Want to play hangman? I ache to tell him that I have enough on my plate playing quadriplegic. But my communication system disqualifies repartee. The keenest rapier grows dull and falls flat when it takes several minutes to thrust it home. By the time you strike, even you no longer understand what had seemed so witty before you started to dictate it letter by letter. Mm. I just thought it was a really lovely way of describing the so many things are lost that you wouldn't initially imagine humor is so hard to deliver in that way and yet he seems to manage to hold on to it throughout the memories that he talks about it was also just such a powerful book to read right now given the current situation Mm. when we feel about as trapped as we ever have with lockdown to read this book and realize how much freedom i have in drastic comparison to jean doe who obviously lived with locked in syndrome if someone didn't do those things we mentioned earlier, changing the channel or something. He is he's a complete loss to their whims. Mm. I think the lack of freedom we have in lockdown is just not comparable to the lack of freedom he had. We still have our, our choices and things. It was just a really humbling read. Weirdly, it wasn't deliberate. It feels deliberate now I've read it to have that comparison. I don't know how I came across it, but... It was just really kind of apt timing. And he died actually in 1997, really shortly after the book was published. Oh, wow. And there's been a film made about it. I think it was an adaptation of the book back in 2007, I think. And it did really well from what I've seen. I think it Mm -hmm. won a a BAFTA and Golden Globes and had Oscar nominations and everything. And I thought, oh, I might like to watch that. But then actually the more I've thought about it, he painted such vivid imagery with his words that I I kind of don't really want to change the visuals that he's given me, if that makes sense. Mm, Oh, that's a really beautiful idea. He talks about how he takes himself off to places and to memories and to people that he doesn't Mm. get to do physically. And he takes us, the reader there too, to these amazing places and memories. And he writes really deliciously about food in particular. (laughs) And he says things like, oh, these days when I'm cooking, nothing can go wrong. It always tastes amazing because he's writing it all in his head for himself. Yes. It's just a really incredible little book. I found really inspiring and just so beautifully written. I'd really recommend it. Yeah. How meta as well to be writing about the way in which people interact with you and look after you whilst writing that with someone that's looking after you yeah how interesting yeah there's a really lovely section right at the end as he's rounding up where he writes specifically about claude directly and i thought i would imagine that'd be such an emotional moment for both of them for her hearing him Mm. communicate how he sees her throughout this whole process it was really beautiful really really lovely Mm. yeah i've worked transcribing for someone and they were speaking it to me as i was typing but that desire to finish off words or add in commas or Mm. create sentences how you expect them to lead versus how they're going to lead as well is so interesting and how 
you develop a relationship with the person that you're working with, but how your intuition can both be incredibly valuable in intuiting what you think they might need in that moment, but also can be Mm. very wrong sometimes. And the line between those two things is incredibly narrow. Yeah, so true. When I was reading him write about exactly that, I thought, oh, which would I be? And I thought, oh God, I'd be awful. I'd be always trying to finish a sentence just to help and wanting to Mm. feel like you were helping. And then... I thought that was a really bad thing, but I think it is, you know, putting words in someone's mouth. But also it was interesting to hear him say he kind of was slightly laughing at the people who were so resistant of ever doing that. And he was like, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with when I'm talking about food, adding room onto mush. So it's obviously mushroom and things like that. So it was interesting. I just think, yeah, the power over words, whether they're physically from yourself or through another, it shows it's not at all impacted by the delivery being in a different form yeah i was just reading actually in the paris review an article called what writers and editors do by carl ove nasgard it's about the interaction between writers and editors and having that person backstage who's curating and tightening and manipulating the words of the writer that often gets the laudits or the fame for their work how those things come together and but how interesting to think of that as well through the eyes of someone that is literally taking your words down as yeah because i wonder how the process worked if he worked with an editor as well well seemingly i think he edited it himself Mm. which I just think, just from memory purposes, I'm trying to imagine how it would have worked. Him spending hours planning what he wanted to say, tweaking it, editing it himself before communicating it. And then I'm sure some edits again afterwards, but it sounded a lot like it was hugely edited on the go via him, which is kind of staggeringly impressive. Yeah, wow. Amazing. Really good book. Yeah, I really recommend it. And a nice little short one as well. Again, I know what you're saying about finding books that apply to the moment. Is that us picking out books that we unconsciously know might interact with our day to day? Or do you see those elements in that book? Or is it fate? I can't quite work it out. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? I think with this one for me, it was definitely a case of I wanted to read more books by disabled authors. Mm. And so I started looking into it that way. And then... I think it's that I saw the lockdown connection. Mm. I didn't seek it out because of it. It just was a, you see what you see in things because of what's going on around Mm. you. I've been reading I Am, I Am, I Am by Maggie O'Farrell, which is her memoir, but told through near-death experiences or brushes with death that she's had. Wow, plural. Yeah, I know. Gosh. When I read the title, I was like, I'm not sure if I can even list one (laughs) near-death experience that I can think of. and can't tell if that's because I'm leading boring life, but... I'd say that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in terms of longevity, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and it's so intriguing seeing her life through those heightened moments. And also that there are so many brushes with death that are unconscious and that she only realises anecdotally from her parents or by chance later. She's touching on all sorts of moments throughout her life, from dangerous men all the way through to childbirth, when her knowledge of her body is ignored by doctors and led to an incredibly life-threatening situation and it's only towards the end of the memoir that O'Farrell explains this childhood illness that she experienced encephalitis which brought her to the brink of death and all the nurses were anticipating her death and her parents were anticipating this death and it's only then through her recovery and she had to relearn all her motor skills and learn how to walk again and through that experience the whole book begins to come together because it was quite jarring at first seeing someone's life through these screenshots of death but because of that experience in her childhood you suddenly understand her fascination with the fragility of life and also the strength of life and her absolute Mm. determination to live vitally and it's not about these near-death experiences but more how they intersect with the rest of her life it's the exploration of motherhood and her friends and her lovers which makes the book come to life there's a really beautiful passage which i'm going to read to you which really made me laugh (laughs) pausing in the act of cramming sweaters and dresses and books into her bag she laughed bullshit she said loudly momentarily forgetting the other people in the rooms around them that she pointed at the bra flung wide on the boyfriend's desk wouldn't fit your sister in a million years 
He stopped <laughs> disowning the bra. He stood up. He got defensive, angry. He said, yes, all right, there has been a woman. There have, in fact, been several. He accused her of always working or reading or sitting at her desk writing or, as he put it, typing. She never had any time for him. If she wasn't out, she was distracted by something else. He was losing his sense of self, his sense of worth, and needed to find himself again. He ended this speech with the words, I did it for us. This <laughs> <laughs> really made me laugh. That's good. I love that sense of entitlement <laughs> that you could possibly be cheating on someone to keep a relationship alive and doing it for us. <laughs> but the memoir ends on this really heartbreaking story about her daughter who's born with chronic eczema and acute allergies. And O'Farrell describes this uber alert mentality that she has to maintain at all times in the face of her daughter's constant fragility and the alertness that she needs to keep her daughter alive and all the fear and the worry and placing the stories of her childhood illness and then her daughter's current situation is so crucial in keeping that circle of life and reminding us that we're all so mm. fragile and again against the this so much life in the rest of the memoir and all her brushes with death up until that point come from the joyful recklessness of her desire to live hard and live properly and grasping life properly which i think is so again important with covid which i think again zadie smith i talked about this a couple of weeks ago zadie smith's intimations she talks about trump's tweet in which he said that america didn't have death before covid and she's musing on that idea and thinking <laughs> about that Zadie Smith brought about this idea that in fact actually maybe America didn't have death they had dead people they didn't have this overarching death that's hanging around the air's heavy with mm. illness and fear and death and I thought that was quite important I think that's what is is a constant thread throughout Maggie O'Farrell's book is that death that's hung over her life and that has saturated every moment which is how she can encapsulate her life through 17 stories that are brushes with death that I don't think I would necessarily, mm -hmm. until now, I don't think I've had as much constant death around as it's sort of very morbid, but... Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Sadie Smith talks about the way in which that although death is hanging in the air, there's a there's a privilege too who's dying and who's not as well that's still related to money and influence. Just getting sad about the strange way in which I don't know if it's too Foucauldian, but the way in which death is allowed for some people and not for others. Mm. It's just a strange time, isn't it, <laughs> in which we live. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think what you said a minute before you started talking about the book about how we've both weirdly been drawn to books that are vaguely kind of life affirming and, and make you grateful for what you have and, and all of those things. It's not something I thought I would seek out as such, but it is funny that we've both sort of ended up reading that sort of thing mm. at the moment. Well, I've got another book for you, which doesn't fit into that sort of pattern, mm. but is actually a really interesting distraction. It's called The Dutch House by Anne Patchett. And it's totally delightful it's quite a kind of small story not intimate it, it's quite contained it's very nuanced and understated story about these two characters called Maeve and Danny who are children and they grew up in this extraordinary glass house with their father and it's a big beautiful house and their childhoods are filled with privilege their mother left when Danny was little when Maeve was around 11 so she's sort of stepped into this mothering role with him and their relationship is very close and one day this woman called Andrea comes to visit and then Andrea brings her young daughters to visit and before long Andrea is their stepmother and Maeve at this point is away in college and Andrea's daughter moves into Maeve's bedroom and there's this really slow exclusion but after Maeve and Danny's father dies because of a sort of misunderstanding or just perhaps because of imposter syndrome that they are thrown out by Andrea and it's such an interesting book because it I know that's a massive thing to happen. It was one of those moments that made me really filled with rage about the injustness of being thrown out of something that is yours. And it's so strange to me that that should be something that made me so angry and so upset because it's such a small trauma, the idea of, of losing a house. I think mm. because of their claim to it, 
that there's something just incredibly unjust about someone yeah no longer having the right to your own belongings and i feel like it's a storyline that we've definitely had a lot as children in fairy tales and generally mm. growing up with novels and books like it immediately made me think of matilda <laughs> yes that sort of immediate rage of not understanding that this child needs books and education and why can't you give her that <laughs> And like the whole Miss Honey being mm. chucked out of her family home. And, and I think that's a really entrenched fairy tale story of the new evil stepmother coming in and the poor loved children who have already suffered a loss of a parent being kicked out. So I think as well as it being interesting that you had that reaction to it, I think it's a, it's kind of drilled into us that that's such a, yes. a typical baddie. But I don't understand as well because they have so much education and they land on their feet and they have because the staff of the house are fired with them so they have this net to land on a net of support and it's so strange to me that that action of someone who is they've lost the house but they're ultimately they've landed on their feet they're fine being one that made me so irate as opposed to someone that loses their home and has to live on the street do you know what i mean there's so many yeah larger injustices which happen but you're right it's probably that fairy tale notion mm. that's yeah entrenched in me so it then continues on to the incredibly complicated understanding of their psychology as they come to terms with their losses and as they build their lives on those losses and Danny is sent by Maeve through the the most expensive education she can find because their father has wrapped up their education in this trust fund but purely for education so Danny gets trapped on this path of becoming a doctor that he doesn't want to be on and then his life is created around this not lie but a sort of untruth potentially that he's on a path that he doesn't want to be on the partner that he attracts is attracted to that path that he's on and every moment of this book is filled with the tension and microaggressions of sort of miscommunication and misunderstandings and not being yourself and there's so much so much tension between the potential that their lives have and their, the potential their careers have and all the what ifs of what if their mother hadn't left? What if their father hadn't died? What if Andrea hadn't kicked them out? And mm. it's so pregnant with those ideas of maybe, which I think are inherent in, I guess, privilege in the idea that you aren't just doing what you have to do. Yeah, not forced into anything. You had choices. And you choose badly because of a lack of yeah. understanding about yourself. And it was incredibly real and made me very angry and very sad. And there's a really beautiful quote, which I think does come back to that idea of being trapped. Like swallows, like salmon, we were the helpless captives of our migratory patterns. We pretended that what we had lost was the house, not our mother, not our father. We pretended that what we had lost had been taken from us by the person who still lived inside which I think is such an, an other idea of being trapped. It's not being physically trapped or sort of legislatively trapped as we are now, but more being trapped by not fully taking control of your life or by the habits that other people have formed for us or by the ideas that someone has told you to live by and, and they create these little prisons of habit that you conform to. Mm. that really hit a nerve <laughs> yeah that sounds like a really good book i think again because it is such a abstract story in this fairy tale notion of nuclear families and mm. inheritance and the idea that life is going to work out and it has such a shiny beginning and then drops into something so understandably real and there's nothing inherently sad about their lives they are free to choose their lives and they are free to love who they want. They can have children. There's nothing holding them back except for their understanding of their childhood and their perspective towards their life. That's the only thing holding them back. Yeah, and I guess it's a, there's a lot tied up with your own self of identity, isn't it? About where you've come from or where you feel connected to or home. Mm. So maybe that's the only thing that you would consider a loss is that loss of an, an anchor or your feeling of where your roots are mm, yeah completely so the other book i've been reading is called what red was by rosie price mm. and the idea of privilege and class comes into a, 
play a lot in this book as well, actually. But just before I go into it, just a trigger warning for this book, that the main plot line is of sexual assault and rape. So if you want to skip ahead for any part of this podcast, you can rejoin us at around 44 minutes. What Red Was is by Rosie Price, and it was released in 2019. And it was a really great novel. I've literally just finished it yesterday, and I really, really loved it. It was about friendship and class and the idea of privilege and how it weighs in on so many if not all aspects of life ultimately the effect that a really serious sexual assault has on all of these things especially friendship i'm gonna try and not go into the plot because it's really hard to not give the whole book away Mm. but it's quite unique for me in that it dives into what has to be or what ultimately was sacrificed by the character for her to be able to move on again or at least sort of gain control and clarity in her life again after she is raped. Mm. It's an area of the topic of, of sexual assault that I've not seen delved into in terms of fiction really much. And it's also a story that doesn't have much closure, which I also think is really poignant. And when I've read some interviews with the author, she is quite clear that it was quite a deliberate move. And she was a victim of rape herself. And she mentioned the need to almost not have that well-rounded ending where things are back on track at least or looking like they're heading that way because it's just not representative of life after trauma. Mm. So the story centres around this really, really close friendship between Kate and Max who meet at university. And they're from quite different backgrounds. And she sort of presents university as a kind of leveller of class and background. I think for lots of people, it can be the first point in life where you're thrown into a massive mix of people from lots of different backgrounds to you and different Mm. lifestyles to you. And maybe if you come from a small place or you've not moved around much, it's the first time you interact with so many different backgrounds and and class and privilege and all those things are thrown in together. And so Kate and Max in this story are both from the same area in Gloucestershire. But Max is from a really big, wealthy family with a huge house in the rolling countryside. And Kate is from a more normal background. It's just her and her mum. Her mum is really struggling with various things. And Kate's often really embarrassed about her background and her family life. And so through her friendship with Max, Kate kind of enters this completely different world because of him. And like I said, I won't go into the plot too much, but there are... There are so many subtle things that the author, Rosie Price, just drops throughout the book for you to pick up that aren't massively plot related, but just a very light dusting of commentary on the class divide and how it does have a knock on effect on all the events in the book. It's Mm. really, really well done. And entitlement is everywhere in this book. Why does this character feel that they are entitled to this woman? Why Mm -hmm. does this character feel they can't say anything? And you'd look at the book and you think, right, this is a book about sexual assault, Mm -hmm. but it's about so much more than that. I was really struck by the way she writes about rape and the aftershocks that it leaves in someone's life. And in this story, the aftershocks just don't really end. The actual act of sexual assault was really casual, almost simple. It's not a hard-hitting running down a dark alley being chased by someone it was just so commonplace and I think she's really skilled in presenting something Mm. as awful and traumatic as rape in a really commonplace way which is sadly can be the case and she made it so normal for the perpetrator it also really interestingly explores the really practical sides of life after trauma and things like figuring out quite literally how to find the words to tell someone you love I've been raped that's such a massive terrifying word mm. and being scared of the word and and trying to frame it differently and, and how to deal with that on behalf of someone else almost mm. there's a I know we've done a lot of reading today to each other but there's a really great bit that I want to find Kate learned very quickly that there was no subtle way of explaining that she had been raped mm. there was no oblique way of putting it And because there was no halfway point between having been raped and having not, Mm -hmm. there were no means of testing the water, of hinting at her condition to measure the response of any potential confidant. There were only the raped and the unraped. Yeah. I'd never thought about it like that before. And even, you know, preparing my notes to talk about this, I didn't like how many times I wrote rape and how many times I've said it. It's not a word that sits well with anyone and it's not spoken about. You know, we shy away from the worst things. And I think thinking about that from a victim's point of view I had never thought about that as part of going through the trauma is having to physically say the words that 
universally we don't like to hear. Mm. And the other thing that the writer explores in the story is is the things afterwards that helped that were unexpected, like practical tasks, working really hard at a physical task to tire you out so your mind is not able to torture you so much. As Like I said at the beginning, sadly, the author Rosie Price herself has been a victim of rape. Mm. You know that these elements are authentic, you know, the, the things about what helps and what wasn't helping her. Maybe it's invented or maybe it's from her personal experience. That's kind of neither here nor there, but it just looked at things in a far more human way Mm. and there's a lot of plot around the book it's not all tragedy you know it's a really interesting exploration of all those other things ultimately what sacrifices are made to get through something like that is it friendship is it your sense of self is it your identity there's so many things at play and it's just really really well done i was just thinking about that excerpt you read and actually i mean it's incredibly hard-hitting and true but also how there is then between the idea of rape and unraped there is actually a whole chasm of nuance and I was thinking about in Maggie O'Farrell's I Am I Am I Am there's this incredibly tense story that she tells about when she was walking up this mountain and she met a man said hi to him nothing happened carried on walking up the mountain and saw him on the path ahead and from that moment, she knew that there was something afoot. And mm. he then walks down the mountain path next to her and then points out some ducks and puts his binocular strap round her neck so that she oh can God. look through the binoculars at the ducks. Oh. And everything about that interaction is, on the surface, incredibly innocuous. And she then talks her way out of the situation goes down the mountain, goes straight to the police station and said, this thing happened. And Mm. the policeman said, so you met a man on the mountain path and he told you to look through his binoculars. And then a week later, a woman is strangled with a binocular strap on the mountain. But that both those ideas of having to say the words rape and not rape are incredibly Mm. loaded with the notion of belief, but also that intuition of knowing that something is about to lead to a place, knowing that a binocular strap around the neck is on the path to something like being murdered is Mm. such a grey area that it's so hard to explain that someone just walked next to you in the wrong way and you feel that feeling of absolute fear and that you know where that moment could lead because of just the way in which someone bumped against you. Mm. And there's such a chasm between those two notions and how, in in terms of that near-death experience, feeling, knowing that there's so many moments that could have led to another place if you hadn't have realised that it was about to happen or if you hadn't talked yourself away from that situation or put someone between you and another person. Mm. Very frightening, actually. (laughs) Yeah, really frightening thought so much fragility in the world and I think particularly in women's bodies and I know that a lot of actors have spoken out against cancel culture as being something frightening and something that's preventing freedom of speech but I think the other side of it is that sometimes simply that feeling of intuition and understanding that even something that when you explain it in words is quite innocent seeming that if someone has trespassed across that boundary then that needs to be stopped because the potential is so much greater than that which is why cancel culture and this public protest I think exists in the way it does because of that need to believe people yeah and need to believe people's truths even in the face of sometimes that not being true I think yeah no I totally agree it's an incredibly thorny subject actually (laughs) yeah this book is ultimately it's about an awful event but it's not a awful read do you know what I mean it's not harrowing at every Mm. turn there's a lot of other things to explore and like I said it's just so the the amount of pages I folded down it's really beautiful because of the title what red was the edges of the pages are red and it's a reference to there's a there was a red label inside her attacker's collar oh gosh and then she has this flashback about 
red and when she sees that exact red again yeah but the actual edges of the pages are all red so when you hold the book on its side it's really beautiful but i've made a mess of it because i've folded down about 15 different pages from bits that I had to come back to there's nothing better than a worn book is there <laughs> i was thinking about this the other day when i was folding some pages down or like underlining something and i was like oh i wonder if alex is a book adulterator like me mm. the more worn the better <laughs> where, where do you stand on that oh i fluctuate totally i think it depends on how much ownership i feel towards a book if a book really touches me that for some reason asserts my feeling some sort of ownership over it and therefore allows me to dog ear it and carry mm. it around with me and open it up again and again so it does that beautiful thing where it falls open on your favorite pages <laughs> yeah but there are definitely some books where i feel alienated or kind of removed from the storyline they, they often end up being incredibly pristine where i've like not even <laughs> bent the spine <laughs> so if I was a book in your ownership, I'd want you to be scribbling all over you and, and folding pages. You'd want you want <laughs> a sign of a good book in your eyes is one that's all messed up, not a good one. <laughs> I know, it's, it doesn't quite make sense, does it? It's interesting <laughs> though, isn't it? Because books land in an opposite place from a lot of other art because of the way in which it can be reproduced and reprinted. Mm. It's strange to have ownership over a piece of work that you could have ownership over the physical copy of the book in a way that you wouldn't have ownership over a play that was being mm. performed. So I think there's something very strange about the physicality of a book. Well, from many books to something different, mm. I actually on after a conversation we had, I decided to listen to harry and megan's new podcast oh god i haven't listened to this again this came from a friend talking to me about the trailer to their podcast which was made fun of by adam buxton and his podcast which i will send you i need to listen to it i love that <laughs> so it's out now the first episode of the yeah so this had completely passed mm. me by i had no idea they were doing a podcast or anything until you said this then went for a run this morning and thought hey do you know what i'm gonna give this a listen i really tried to put it out of my head all i knew about it was what you had said which is about this comedic spin on it that adam buxton does slightly just taking mm. the piss so I was trying to like push that away as I was listening to it, but it probably influenced me slightly. It was really odd. I don't quite know what I think of it yet. It was, firstly, it was just weird hearing Prince Harry being like, hi, it's Harry. And I was like, oh, it's so weird. It's Harry on podcast. And it wasn't awful by any means. And it wasn't particularly groundbreaking. Basically, the concept is them bringing together tons of massive A-listers, basically, to have sound bites from each of them about how their lockdown experience has been, oh. which in itself, I was like, weird, because in the first two minutes, you'd heard like two sentences from about eight different huge oh, guests. Wow. And I was kind of thinking, oh, why didn't they do one episode with each of these people and actually ha have a chat yeah. with them? They called it a holiday season special or something. So maybe the rest will be different. <laughs> I don't really There's know. There's a bit in the Adam Buxton impression where Harry's going, Chris, I mean, holiday season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots of little isms that he's obviously either slipped into or done deliberately that are like that. I kind of thought, yeah, why aren't they doing an interview with each of these people? And they weren't really in it themselves. Like they introduced the concept yeah. and then they kind of introed each person. They basically had said that they'd asked all these people to record audio diaries of where they were in lockdown, how they were feeling, how they think they've changed, what's become important to them, the kind of generic how's your lockdown been questions. Mm. And then they sort of collated them all and slightly introduced each one and commented on how great so-and-so was and oh, what didn't they do a brilliant thing. So it's just a bit odd. I was kind of like, it's not really about them at all. Maybe that was the point. But if it wasn't about them, they basically just made a podcast about how great their phone book is because they've got all these amazing people on talking about themselves. But there was no, for instance, the Adam Buxton podcast. I listened to it because he has good guests, but also because of him. He's a great host and he's interesting mm. in himself. I just found it a bit weird. They were kind of detached. How interesting, because I felt from the trailer, I thought it was actually strangely enough about them interviewing the sort of ordinary person. Yeah, I thought the same. From their introduction when they're saying we're going to talk to some people mm. that have experienced all sides of lockdown and stuff. And I was like, oh, cool, okay, they're going be talking to people on the front line of the health service and all these other people it was all just super famous people so part of me was feeling really cynical like do i need to listen to a podcast about loads of super famous rich people talking about the same experience we've all had in lockdown not really or then i was like well i could look at it more empathetically and think 
it's interesting to listen to super famous, super rich people who have had the same experience we have in lockdown because a pandemic is a mm. pretty great leveler and affects us all. But then at the same time, it doesn't affect us all the same because like you were talking about earlier with privilege and healthcare and all of those things and how people keep saying, we're all in the same boat. Well, no, we're not in the same boat. We're yeah. all in the same storm in very different boats. And I don't know, a part of me was like, am I being too picky or... Am I being genuine when I think this was, it just felt not tactless. That's too strong a word because it was interesting to hear from some of the people, you know, Elton John, mm. Brene Brown, Naomi Osaka, so many really cool people. It was interesting to hear from them, but nothing about it was Harry or Meghan or their interactions with people. It, I don't know. It was just weird. It just made me think I'd have liked to have been sat in the production meeting when they bashed out what this was going to be because <laughs> I have no idea what the aim of this was. But yes. it was interesting enough. I wonder if it's going to land. You know how Gal Gadot's video, there was a lot of backlash, wasn't there, about these people in their huge homes being yeah. like, oh, life is so hard. Exactly. That chasm between some people's experiences of lockdown mm. and others. And there was a little bit of that. And then I really tried to stop myself and go, you know what? You can have all the money in the world mm. and still really suffer with depression and loneliness. Oh, why does everything keep on coming back to Zadie <laughs> Smith's book? I have to lend you this because she talks yes, again do. about the relativity of suffering and how it can never, ever be relative because suffering is absolute and it's just such a immersive experience. And that's why the CEO daughter starves herself. She's talking about the meme of suffering like Mel Gibson because there's a picture of <laughs> Mel Gibson talking to the actor who's, I think, from The Passion of Christ, who's yeah. acting Jesus covered in blood. And the caption is me explaining to my friend with five children why lockdown is hard. <laughs> it was weird because I kind of thought them doing a podcast was them being like, look, here we are. We're mm. normal, non-royal folk now talking to the people. So then to do a podcast with just super elite A-listers talking about lockdown was just a bit weird. There was mm. one amazing bit from an incredible poet called Hussein Manawar mm. from East London who had done this amazing piece and it just I was grinning listening to it. That was a real highlight. There was no one that I was like, don't want to hear from you. They were all obviously super high profile people that it was very interesting to hear from. But the whole concept just felt a bit weird to me. However, the cutest thing ever was right at the end after the music had finished, there was like a tiny bit from Archie, their little baby, who's probably not a baby anymore. He was like, Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to impersonate an American baby. A little cute American baby said Happy New Year and then like had the most adorable giggle and they were both very cute with it and it just really made me smile. Oh, I was like, charming. well, that was adorable. Well, I'm totally intrigued now. Yeah. I, I think there's no way I can't listen to it. And weird or not, I think I have to listen to it. <laughs> I think you do. I think you do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for an amazing chat. And I'm looking forward to listening to those episodes about Meghan and Harry. And yes, for doing a big book swap when we can finally meet up. Yes, for sure. You can see all my folded pages and I look forward to seeing all your battered copies of books <laughs> loads of love see you soon speak to you next week bye